0: Welcome to the Desert City Church podcast. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are spending the summer in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a big word, but it simply means repetition of the law or repeating of the law. It is a book comprised of a series of sermons Moses gave the people of God before they were to enter the promised land. The people of God spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, a time of formation identity, and unexpected lessons. These divine words come to us out of the wilderness. can open up to Matthew chapter 4. In 1954, there was an author named Douglas Wallop who wrote a book entitled The Year the Yankees Lost the Pennant. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've read it. You've probably heard of some of the adaptions that have been made for Broadway. But the story follows uh, a a middle-aged, overweight, average Joe, who is a fanatic of the Washington Senators. Washington Senators is an old baseball team from Washington, D.C. And it was kind of a lost cause to be a fan of this team because they could never beat the Yankees for the American League pennant. Uh, You may know the Washington Wizards as the Texas Rangers. They moved to Dallas, became the Texas Rangers. They still can't beat the Yankees. Uh, But this was just a huge fan. And he wanted to beat the Yankees so so bad that he was willing to do anything. Uh, One summer, they were trailing uh, the Yankees as they usually would be. And this man ran into a stranger. And the stranger offered him a deal. He offered him to magically transform him into a young 21-year-old baseball player, a stud, uh, in which he would play for the Senators and beat the Yankees. And he told him, I can make you the best baseball player around if you're willing to do this deal with me. So really without thinking, he said, yes, of course, I'm going to totally do this, and decided that he wanted to be transformed into this young baseball player. And as the story starts to unfold, he starts to realize something about the stranger It's not just any ordinary stranger, this stranger was the devil. And as the story comes out more and more, he realizes that the price he has to pay to become this young stud baseball player is his soul. But we're talking about the Yankees, so he makes the deal and sells his soul. And the rest of the story is kind of uh, the experiences of what happens when you, you pursue the thing that you desire most in life, selling your soul, in the process, and so he becomes uh, becomes this young baseball player, uh, becomes like national news. ridiculous. He hits like forty eight home runs in two months, and bats over five hundred. and uh, And the Senators start winning. And uh, his his old life, and he's he's married. His wife is middle aged as well. She can't recognize him. And he starts to kind of live this celebrity lifestyle. Women are flocking to him. Uh, he gets this huge contract, and he's making tons of money for. Don't know what the contracts were like back then. And he starts every now and then to kind of run into his wife and she doesn't recognize him and he's like trying to dodge her. And then he starts to run into these other people uh, who he's having these encounters with. And he's realizing that these people have done the same thing. They have sold their soul to the devil to pursue the thing that they want most in life. So he runs into this woman and she's absolutely gorgeous and he's just mesmerized by her. And it turns out she was like the ugliest lady in the town and she wanted to be beautiful. And then he runs into this millionaire and then he runs into this doctor. And and the story starts to come out that all of these people have paid this price to become this thing that they desired most in life. And as the story goes, I won't ruin the end of it for you, but he tries to get out of this deal, eventually realizing what it's done to his soul just to beat the Yankees. And it's, it's supposed to be this, this comical story, uh, but it's interesting when we think about uh, the way the devil works in this world, the way uh, that he plays on our desires, he plays on the things that we want in life. And I don't know if that story is necessarily like theologically correct, but I wanted us to think about this year the Yankees lost the pennant as we turn our attention to the story in Matthew chapter 4. This is a story that my brother Richard preached on last week, and it's going to kind of conclude our sermon on out of the wilderness. But I wanted to read through two stories. The first takes place in Matthew chapter 3, and it's about the baptism of Jesus. And it says in verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, Whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. This is the baptism of Jesus. This is this unbelievable moment. A dove descends from heaven. The heavens open up, and God verbally speaks. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit descends, this voice, this booming voice. The very next verse, the very next thing that happened, that same spirit says, Jesus was led by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, I will give you all of this. I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This encounter we have with Jesus and the devil, uh, not quite him trying to sell his soul for his favorite sports team, but it's interesting when you think about the three temptations, the way that, that, that Jesus is tempted in this story. The reason that we've kind of landed on this story is that it takes place in the wilderness. And it's interesting as we read some of these passages in the New Testament, there's this parallelism. It kind of echoes these stories of the Old Testament. And even if we would just kind of make some observations about the story as we read it, Richard mentioned this last week, there's this echo of the story of the Garden of Eden when the devil shows up to tempt Adam and Eve. And what Jesus is doing here, you can see how just the parallel, the echo of that story, he's starting to unpack the curse that takes place in the Garden of Eve. But there's other kind of echoes of the Old Testament in this story. I mean, when you just look at some of the details, think about how uh, when, when, when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they pass through the waters, they emerge from the Red Sea. And after that, they go and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And here we have Jesus emerging from the waters of baptism and going out into the wilderness to be tempted. Not for 40 years, but for 40 days. He has this 40 days of fasting. This there's a story being told here, but there's there's something much deeper happening. There's this retelling of this God's story of how He interacts with humanity. And if we continue to read even what happens between the baptism and now the temptation, they're kind of like juxtaposed against each other. In the Baptism, we have the cool waters of the Jordan. And now Jesus is out in the barren wilderness. One of the most significant moments of his life, the baptism where where, where God comes, this audible voice, the first thing that happens is he gets put out into this wasteland. These huge crowds witness the baptism, but now Jesus is in solitude and silence. The spirit rests like a dove. Now the spirit drives him into the wilderness. The voice of the father is calling him the beloved son in the baptism story. And now he hears the hiss of Satan, the tempter. He's anointed, but now he's attacked. He went through the water of baptism and now he's in the fire of temptation. The heavens opened up and now he's facing hell. Which is interesting, Jesus, that some would say this this baptism for him is this commissioning to his ministry. We know that he's been around for a while, but all of a sudden now he's commissioned uh, to do ministry. And the first thing that happens is he drives, is driven into the wilderness, out into the desert for silence and solitude. The first thing that happens for him is he goes through a trial, a difficulty. As we've been kind of tracking through the Deuteronomy story, we talked about how Deuteronomy is Moses giving this series of sermons about what happened when they were in the wilderness. And we've talked about how the wilderness is a place of refining, of formation, of difficulty, but unexpected lessons. And sometimes when we go through these seasons in life, these wilderness experiences, they're hard, they're challenging. We don't understand why we go through them. And yet God is doing something in our heart, in our soul, in our mind. He's developing us to be a certain kind of person. And the first thing that happens to Jesus after the baptism is he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he encounters this stranger trying to get him to sell his soul. Another thing that's interesting about this story is that the two characters are Jesus and the devil. There's no disciples around. So how do we have the account of this story? Well, Jesus must have told this story to his followers. Jesus must have come back and said, you'll never guess what happened to me when I was in the wilderness. And I think all of scripture is God-breathed, and all of scripture is this, this dripping with divine inspiration. But I think what's so interesting about this story is that Jesus is the only one witnessing it. So if all of Scripture is God-breathed, but this story, especially, we think about the detail, Jesus wants us to know what happened. He came back and he communicated this story of this temptation. He doesn't hide anything. He doesn't hold back. He says, these are the three things that the devil came after me with. So the important, the intentionality of Jesus telling the story, to pay attention to the details of it. Then another observation is, Jesus uses scripture to combat the devil. And if you could think about maybe like your life verse, your favorite scripture, what you would use uh, uh, for inspiration, what you would use when you're going through hard times. Do you know what Jesus uses? He uses the book of Deuteronomy. It's probably not like top on our list. Like, you know, I I always go to like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthen me. Or... I go to Psalm 23 or something. Jesus goes to Deuteronomy. A big reason that we wanted to study Deuteronomy this summer is this is the scripture Jesus uses when he faces the devil. Deuteronomy can be this book that seems old and dry in the Old Testament, but the story that emerges from Deuteronomy is the story of how God speaks to humanity, gives identity to his people, develops them to be a particular people here. And this is what Jesus draws from. When he's tempted in the desert Great observations that we need to pay attention to And then there's the three temptations And I think this is always interesting As we look through the temptations Um, The story of uh, the year the Yankees lost the pennant When the devil meets with this average Joe It doesn't seem like he really goes for What we would think Satan would go for in our lives I mean, this is a noble cause, right? Meeting the Yankees I don't know, right? So the same thing kind of happens with, with, with the devil and Jesus. He doesn't just try to get Jesus to do some sort of evil. He warps and he twists the desires of Jesus' heart. He tries to make them something that they shouldn't be. He takes good things and he manipulates them. He turns them bad. The first temptation, Jesus is in the wilderness and he's fasting. He's probably pretty hungry. It says he hungers. We don't know what kind of fast this is, but I don't know if it's like he's doing like a you know cleanse, a juice diet. I don't know. <laughs> There's partic- there are particular fasts. It doesn't tell us which one it is, but we know that he's there for a reason for for uh, the Jewish people fasting, and for for many people, it's they're experiencing God in a way that they wouldn't be able to experience them without the fast. Fasting kind of reveals what's going on in your heart. And I've done it. A couple times of all the different spiritual practices, I don't like the fast. I really like food. It's hard for me. The thing that it reveals in my life is that I'm irritable when I'm hungry, I get hangry. But Jesus is in this season of fasting. And what the devil does is he comes after him and tries to get him to turn stones into bread. And in the story, we have Jesus announcing to Satan and to all of us who will hear it that it's better to be hungry. It's better to have this physical hunger than to be fed without any reference or recourse to the will of God. He's being obedient, knowing that he's in the season of fasting. And he decides, I'm not supposed to eat right now. I'm not going to give in to this temptation. Richard mentioned this last week, because Adam and Eve are also tempted with food. And they choose to eat rather than obey the will of God. Jesus knew that he was led by the spirit to a place of that necessitated hunger and he would not seek something outside of God to fulfill that hunger. I think that's something important for us as human beings, as humans who have desires, who follow the desires of our flesh. There's some things in this life that only God can meet. I've been reading through Augustine's confessions this summer, and uh, I've kind of go, it's a, it's a slow read. It was written in the fourth century. I'll read it kind of like a chapter a day. I always heard that this is a brilliant author, one of the greatest Christian thinkers. And it's kind of hilarious when I read through it. Augustine was this brilliant, uh, brilliant mind. Uh, he also like, traveled around the elite in his culture. Uh, he's famous for saying, Lord, give me chastity, just not yet. He's <laughs> a party animal when he was younger. And had access to everything. Was able to fill uh, his stomach with whatever he wanted. And he gets to this moment where he has kind of this crisis of faith. Where he realizes that everything that this world offers. That he has access to. Unrestrained. Chasing after his desires. And he's miserable. And he's anxious. And he has this famous quote where he talks about. Lord you have created us for yourself. And our heart is restless. Until it rests in thee. There's all sorts of things that we pursue, that we chase after, that we try to meet the hunger in our life. And we have to be reminded, those aren't bad things. But the life that is truly life comes from God. That is our priority, that is what feeds us. And of all the things that we chase after, that is where the true life is. Bread is not a bad thing, but the source of that bread is And because of that, Jesus stays away from that temptation. The second temptation to me is always trickier. takes him to the top of this building. says, jump off of it. The angels will protect you on the way down. This is like, when I was a kid, these are the kind of things that I would want to do to like prove that there was a God. And I'm like, when Satan's doing this, I'm thinking, oh, I would love for Jesus to do this just to prove who he is. Like, why does Jesus put the restraints on? Why doesn't he do it? The other thing about this temptation that's kind of I think terrifying is that, that when Satan's tempting Jesus, he uses scripture to do it. And he brings up Psalm 91. It's the Psalm of trust. And he uses it out of context to try to get Jesus to do this thing. And Jesus decides not to do it. He says, I'm not gonna put, put God to the test. And I was thinking the first temptation is I was trying to like, what is the difference with the first temptation is this physical thing. There's something spiritually happening with this story. And then I started to think about, how does this play out in my life? The first thing I felt like God revealed to me is that I kind of do what Satan does. Putting God to the test, needing signs, needing for him to prove himself. And then I use scripture to do it. I take scripture and I take it out of context and I apply it to things that shouldn't be applied to. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. It feels like a form of spiritual abuse. Jesus is completely fine saying, I don't need to go do this to prove this scripture. I don't put God to the test. I don't get goofy here. I grew up in the church, grew up around Christians, and it was a healthy experience. But the longer that you stay in church, you realize that Christians are broken. We're broken people. The church is a broken place. That's also the beauty of it. Because there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's truth that comes and transforms our lives when we stick with each other through our brokenness. The one thing that I've found is that hyper spirituality, using spiritual language, doesn't always equal spiritual maturity. When I think about what Satan's doing to Jesus, I've thought, man, I've I've done that to people. I've used this hyper spiritual language, I've used scripture. And it doesn't mean that there's spiritual maturity in my life. I have an agenda with God. Satan has an agenda with God. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with it. And Jesus is completely fine in his own skin. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. Quotes Deuteronomy 8 now, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, I don't need to do this to put the Lord my God to the test. Finally, the third temptation. The third temptation is, if the first was physical and the second was spiritual, this is, this is, I would say, a supernatural. We're not exactly sure what happens, but Satan takes Jesus to this mountaintop and he looks out and sees all of the kingdoms of this world. I mean, I have no idea what that would be. Uh, in my mind, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's a, it's a vision of what everything is. Uh, if they're like hovering over, I have no idea. But Jesus is able to see the kingdoms of this world and Satan offers them authority over all of them if they'll bow down and worship. It's an interesting temptation. One, because we know like Satan roams about the earth, but he's offering Jesus something that he doesn't have authority over. And so it is with so much of the temptation of what a Satan would use to destroy us. It's a lie that he can't deliver on. When we think about the things that, that our heart chases after that are outside of God, so often we fall victim to, if I only had this certain thing in my life, then everything else would be happy." And it's a lie that never delivers. It's the lie that Adam and Eve fall prey to. It's the lie that I think that we're offered by the world every single day: our own kingdom, our own agenda, our own desires. For me. It'd be the Phoenix Suns winning an NBA championship. I give my heart, my soul for that. But these things don't deliver. We're left empty. Jesus offered authority from someone who doesn't have it. The other thing that's interesting is that Jesus has authority, and Jesus has a different kind of kingdom, and He's not tempted by the kingdoms of this world. That's not where his authority lies. His authority lies with a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is much different than the kingdoms of this world. And he rejects this temptation. He says, away from me, Satan. Get away from me. And his response here, as he brings about Deuteronomy again, I think is interesting. He says this, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is our call to worship the Lord your God. And to serve him only. The things of this world, Jesus says no. The true life is found at the feet of God. To worship God. To serve him only. It's always fun to come and worship together with this church. It's one of my favorite parts of the week. There's this corporate worship. I've heard that worship is the bane of the devil's existence. He can't exist in a place that's worshiping. There's worship where we sing, there's praise and adoration. And then there's worship that we live our life a certain way. We worship God with our lifestyle. We serve. We serve the kingdom. We serve each other in this room. We serve the world around us. Pretty good action steps of a church to worship and serve. When we do that, we serve God's kingdom, not our own. It's interesting how Satan manipulates things. I, this last week, I was at a conference with a bunch of church planners. You want to talk about an annoying crowd, <laughs> <laughs> all of us little entrepreneurs trying to promote our own thing, and it was super encouraging, don't get me wrong, it was so good to be around. These other church planners who are doing what, uh, what, I, what I'm doing, what Marcy and I are doing, to be around other people who, uh, who, who like this community say, we want to take a community for Christ. But then Satan always sneaks in. And one of the things that I found this week is I was sharing and bragging about this community, this thing that I love so much, is comparison kicks in. The thing that I'm so grateful for and feel like I'm a blessed to be a part of became the thing that like, uh, for me was a source of pride, a source of bragging. And then when you hear stories of these other church planners, um, I couldn't help but to tell my story, out of the goodness of my heart about what God's doing. Be- became this thing that was like something that I was celebrating and glorifying myself with. Became this thing that when I heard stories of other people that might have bigger churches, I always found like the negative or the backstory or they came from a bigger church than we did or something. By the end of the conference, I realized This whole time I've been celebrating what's been happening at Desert City, but it's been all about me and my story and my kingdom. And I forget that we're a part of this other kind of kingdom. And it has nothing to do with me as the leader. It has nothing to do with uh, Tim leading worship. It has everything to do with the spirit of God that is inside each one of us. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. The Lord can give us seasons of his favor. But we're a part of this mission together. It's not built on any one thing. It's built on the Holy Spirit. By the end of the week, one of the last people that spoke talked about this idea of letting our kingdoms melt so that God's kingdom could be molded around us. And I thought about that with my story, with our story. The things that we do As we say no to the kingdoms of this world, we say no to our own kingdom, and we join God. Jesus has offered the authority of the kingdoms. He says, away from me, Satan. I'm a part of something else. And so we are too. This community, this church. We let our kingdoms melt so that God's kingdom can mold. Each week we end our time with communion, which is this reminder that we don't work our way to God, that we don't build our own palaces and kingdoms. We're a part of the story where God does this great work in our lives out of grace, out of love, and out of peace. And then he invites us all to belong to this kingdom. This kingdom that is in line with his heart for the world. That loves others. That worships him. That serves the community. And this is the story that we're a part of. Satan will come in and he'll try to manipulate it. He'll try to take the good things about it and turn them bad. And we say no to those temptations so that we can say yes to God. We let our kingdoms melt so that God's kingdom can be molded. As Tim comes back up, we're gonna spend some time reflecting on uh, the gift of communion. Out of the wilderness comes the story of Jesus tempted, not by things that are evil, but by good things that have, the wrong source. We have these unexpected lessons. we say no to the things of this world so that we can say yes to God. Our seasons of wilderness, our seasons of the desert, God may be working in our life. We are people of grace. We are people of death. We're people of resurrection. Our kingdoms melt, so his may be molded. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this story in Matthew chapter 4. That you told it. That you would go into the wilderness. You would take on Satan. You would work the curse in reverse. You would show us the way of life. You would remind us how your word is powerful. Lord, today, this group of people, this church plant, we want to be in line with your will. Lord, teach us your word to guide us, to thwart the enemy's attacks. Be our true source of life, be our desire. Help us to pursue the things that you want, Lord. Not just our own kingdom. May we worship you and serve you. May your kingdom be molded around us. We're grateful for your grace. Lord, as we move to communion, we're reminded of the work that you do. That through your sacrifice, through the breaking open of your body, Things that are broken get put back together. Through the shedding of your blood, Lord, we take this juice and are reminded that you wash away our dirt. You wash away our sin. You wash away all the ways that we try to build our own kingdom. On our left, weary, broken. We're grateful for your grace, Lord. We come to your table and celebrate that, proclaim it, and live it. Lord, be with us today. We ask your blessing on these people. Amen.